The Sparks Museum podcast is made possible by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast is just one of many new features of the Sparks Heritage Museum. To learn more, check out our social media channels or our website at www.sparksmuseum.org. Hello, and welcome to the Sparks Museum podcast. I'm your host and the media manager for the Sparks Heritage Museum, Jessica Johnson. In late February of 2022, the Immaculate Conception Church, located just south of the Pyramid and Prater intersections, was demolished by a local developer. The Catholic congregation, originally housed in this building, relocated to a new location on North McCarran Boulevard in Sparks in the early 2000s and was sold to a variety of other congregations until ultimately landing in the hands of developers. The structure was one of the buildings designed by renowned Northern Nevada architect Frederick de Longchamps in 1932 and was beloved by many Sparks residents. Despite the building being placed on the National Historic Register, this act did not protect the structure from demolition and came as a shock to many in the community. A pallet of bricks from the original structure, as well as a granite marker noting the year of construction, was donated and is currently housed at the Sparks Museum. Today on the podcast, I sit down with Dr. Alicia Barber. Alicia is an award-winning writer, historian, and founder of the historical consulting firm Stories in Place. She is the author of the book Reno's Big Gamble, Image and Reputation in the Biggest Little City, and is the editor and co-founder of Reno Historical, a website dedicated to Reno's history. She speaks to the changing landscape of the Reno Sparks area, her in-depth research work on East 4th Street and Prater Way, and Sparks' need for a historic commission. Please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Alicia Barber. Thank you so much for being on the Sparks Museum podcast today. My pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> so I'm going to start off with a question that I ask all of our guests, which is, what is your personal connection to the city of Sparks? Are there any events that you have participated in the past, places that you like to visit, or perhaps even what was your first introduction to the city? Well, my, my connection to the city of Sparks is really as a historian. I'm not from this area. I actually moved to Reno in 2003. Uh, for a job and working at UNR, actually, I had a postdoc after I had just received my PhD from University of Texas at Austin. So I came up to this area to teach, to do more research, and had written about Reno, actually, for my dissertation. And when I got to UNR, one of the classes that I was teaching was Nevada history. So jumping into that, I got much more of a familiarity with um, more of the state history. I, I, I knew quite a bit. Um, but then I became very much more familiar with Sparks at, the, at that time uh, and started to attend, uh, you know, all sorts of events over here. I think the, the mainline ones that everybody told you you should go to. Um, but I just became so charmed by the historic parts of Sparks and, and all the people who I met here. So elaborate on that. Tell us a little bit more about your personal history and your work as a public historian. And also, um, how did you develop Stories in Place? And what's, it fun- what's its function? Oh, sure. Well, I so I come from um, um, academic background, and I was very interested early on after college. I was an English major, and I became very interested in the idea of place and sense of place and people's connection to place. So after spending a couple of years working in the concert promotion industry, which was also just something that I loved doing, I went back to graduate school for American studies because I was interested in cultural history. I was under, I was interested in all the things that make up a person's connection to place and how place is reflected in music and in literature uh, and in history and in folklore. So I first went to the University of Utah and got my master's in an English department, but in American studies as a specialization. I was especially interested in the West where I had, I had lived for a long time in the West. We, we moved around a little bit. I was from an academic family. Uh, and then I got my PhD in American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And I there just really kind of honed in on an interest in Western places, um, particularly in urban history and in tourism and place identity and kind of how a place's identity is reflected sort of differently to the outside than maybe it is to residents and what problems that can cause. Um, how does a sense of history 
um, become maintained as an integral part of a place's identity, especially as a lot of cities are becoming more and more the same. They have the same big box, you know, chain stores. They all have Starbucks. They have everything. <laughs> so, you know, what what remains consistent to a place's identity? So that was what I was really focusing on in my in my dissertation. Uh, I chose Reno because I had had family who'd moved here, but it also really intrigued me as a place where. I, I didn't necessarily understand what its story was just by walking around the landscape. I could see that there were historic buildings, but they didn't have plaques. There wasn't interpretation. There were a lot of new things. Uh, I didn't see how it necessarily held together. And so I wanted to explore that. And that's what I ended up writing my dissertation about. But then I came here um, to Reno in 2003 for, for a postdoc, as I say. It was supposed to be a one to three year teaching job. And then I stayed uh, and kept getting um, kind of different jobs at the university too, along with teaching. Uh, I, I became the director of the University of Nevada Oral History Program in 2009. And so um, that was just an enormous honor um, and also a great challenge because we were trying to digitize um, not just the audio from a program that went back to the mid-1960s, but also make all the transcripts available online. So we managed to do that. And I did that for four years through 2013 and then made the decision to leave the university. Um, they had actually decided to sort of dismantle the oral history program and there wasn't really a, a permanent position in public history. I had created public history uh, classes. I taught museum studies. Uh, I taught classes about tourism and cities. But I decided at that point to sort of go out on my own as a consultant. And so I formed my firm, which is called Stories in Place. And I named it that because I'm so interested in, in the combination of storytelling and places. And I had started a partnership with RTC Washoe, the Regional Transportation Commission of Washoe County, while I was still at the university, uh, doing a project about 4th Street and Prater Way. And we developed that project over a period of almost 10 years. Oh, wow. And um, created a lot of different aspects of that, that we're trying to bring history to the public and help strengthen the sense of place that people already possibly felt, but maybe help create a sense of place too, if people weren't familiar with the history or don't have uh, a strong existing connection um, to a place, to, to this place. Um, Nevada is a very transient population. It always has had mm -hmm. a transient population. So to me, it's so important to try to help people understand what a place is about and feel more of an appreciation for its, its history, its stories, its people. And I think that that brings people together. I think it strengthens a place's identity uh, and it provides a sense of continuity through the generations. So I've been you know, fortunate over the last almost 10 years since I started that independent business to do a whole number of public history projects that are both in the local area here, but really throughout the state, just kind of with that same governing ethic, you know, trying to help people establish a stronger connection to the place where they are. So elaborate more on this RTC Washoe project. So why Forth and Prater and what historic Sparks locations were featured in your research? This was a the brainchild really of a couple of people at RTC Washoe who were planners but also had a very strong interest in history. But there was a very practical reason for it, which is that the RTC was embarking upon uh, a project that would improve 4th Street and Prater Way. And uh, this started, this planning project started in 2011 and eventually would widen the sidewalks, right, kind of remove a lot of the barriers to, you know, ADA accessibility. Um, they were improving bike um, bike lanes and, and bus lanes and they added an electric bus line. And um, so it was a very extensive project and people who've lived here for a while will remember that 4th Street and Prater Way were under construction for quite a long time. But part of that was trying to ensure that historic resources, um, you know, buildings uh, weren't being damaged, you know, or wouldn't be threatened by the project. So they actually first had a sponsored project while I was at the university, I was teaching a graduate seminar in oral history for graduate students at the time. And we decided that one of the first things that we could do to try to understand this place was to um, do an oral history project. So uh, me and uh, some of the graduate students just did oral histories with you know, almost 30 people along the corridor. Ultimately, it turned out to be that many people to try to understand the history, while at the same time we were doing 
uh, a lot of research. And there was another class, actually a historic preservation class at UNR, that was doing some field work of architectural surveys at the same time. So it was a really neat partnership where I had some existing relationships with some people at RTC. One of their planning directors, um, Amy Cummings, had actually got her master's degree in history at UNR. And so I had been one of the professors there at the time. So, you know, it kind of fortuitously came up that that there were people there who really had such a strong sense of, you know, interest in the history. And then professionally, they just wanted to make sure that they did right by that corridor, you know, and, and that they um, were respectful and, and appreciative of its history. So it we just had these brainstorming sessions about what we could do, and it just kind of snowballed. So, you know, ultimately, we just came up with a whole variety of intersecting projects that could help establish and strengthen sense of place along that corridor. And they focused on East 4th Street, was where the project kind of started, East 4th Street into Prater Way, all the way over, you know, really to Pyramid mostly to like 15th street and a little bit beyond. And so we started with the research, we did oral histories, and then we worked with Nevada Humanities. We partnered with uh, the Nevada Historical Society, the Sparks Museum, uh, City of Reno, just had a lot of community partners here and created a website for the Fourth Prater Project. It's it's fourth, the number four, thprater.onlinenevada.org. And it has the oral histories and it has a whole narrative history that I wrote of that corridor through time, kind of divided into historic sections um, with links to other spots on the online Nevada encyclopedia to give context, Reno about Reno, about Sparks, um, all sorts of other entries. But also then it links to another project that I co-founded, which is Reno Historical, which is uh, renohistorical.org. It's a website and an app. And we started this when I was still at UNR in 2014 in um, collaboration with the Special Collections Department of the UNR Libraries, Donnie Curtis specifically, because we really, you know how, I, when I said I first came to Reno, it was like the mid-90s, and I didn't understand the history, and I thought, well, it's kind of hard sometimes to mark all the history physically, but what you can do is create a virtual, you know, uh, marker kind of program, really, or tell tell the story virtually. If you do it online, as an app, is it a website, um, this platform does both, then anyone can ex- access this, and you can add historic photographs, and you can tell the stories of these places. So we started to do that uh, in, in 2014. And now there are over 200 entries on Reno Historical. We just keep adding and adding and adding. Mm -hmm. Um, And now it's actually under the auspices of the Historic Reno Preservation Society, which manages the website, and I edit it. And so with that site, we could kind of link to um, the, you know, the Reno portion through that, through online, and then, you know, kind of built more physical um, components to the project, too, where there is, there are, historical displays in both the Reno and Sparks transit stations that tell the story of 4th Street and Prater Way, kind of in a you know small way, but visually and with a little timeline. And then the last project that we did are historically themed bus shelters that are along 4th Street and Prater Way. There are eight of them, and you may have seen them. They each have a collage of historic photos and images on the back. And at night they're lit up and look really neat. Each one is a little bit different, and they tell you something about you know, that area or that part of the corridor. Uh, and there's kind of an online component that can tell you a little bit more about that. So it's just, it, it kind of became something that we think was pretty, you know, unprecedented, particularly for a transportation agency to fund that. And it got other funding too. There was some Nevada Humanities funding, uh, so many terrific partners. But I just love the end result, which to me is is an accessible and easily accessible way for anybody, whether they live here or they're just visiting, to learn more about this place and I think develop a stronger appreciation for it. In talking about Reno Historical, uh, it is my understanding that we, the Sparks Museum used to have the historic Sparks NV app that is unfortunately now defunct. And a lot of this project was available on the app. So what did that look like? And hopefully soon that can be restored. Uh, yes, I still have it on my phone. So I guess if you had it, you have it. But, but <laughs> at this point, you can't, you can't get it anymore. Uh, yeah, so that was part of it too, actually, is because uh, for Reno Historical, uh, RTC was also funding me to create entries on Reno Historical for points on 4th Street that were connected to the project. And so we could do research and add photos and have little narratives and, and talk to people 
along the corridor who could tell us about it. And we wanted to do something, you know, corresponding for Sparks. And at that time, Sparks did have, uh, as you say, a, a Sparks historic app. And so we created, I created a virtual tour of Prater Way for that app. And so it was uh, like the like the Reno version. We picked a number of spots along the way that I had researched and had secured photos of to just tell the story of these places and um, and try to bring them to life, you know, a little bit. And what so, were some of those places? So there, so so many. Um, I think what's what's fun about Prater Way is that, and a lot of this was just new to me, you know. But there are so many different layers to the history on on Prater Way, and there's there's so many stories. Of course, there's a you know Robert H Mitchell Elementary School, um, which is is very well known. I mean, there are places people might think of being a historic landmark, um, but Deer Park. Um, Deer Park, which goes back to, you know, the first uh, decade of the 20th century, just early sparks. Um, but the places that are there and places that aren't there, you know, the Park Motel, but the Park Grocery, which um, was there for a long time. Brandon's Radio and TV, um, the Pony Express Lodge, uh, which started out as Kramer's Motel, the Ideal Shopping Center, which is still there today. And I interviewed uh, Anita uh, Ross Hicks, who was the daughter of the founder of the Ideal Shopping Center who built it. So that was that was fun, Farrell Ross. He was a photographer. Uh, and then, you know, the, the food marts. You know, there are there were some early supermarkets on Prater Way that aren't serving, you know, they're not all serving as supermarkets now, but like the first, uh, you know, the food mart and the, um, the Safeway building. Um, Blue Ribbon Meat Company, which is still there, uh, actually has, has been there for a very long time. It was actually down on, um, on Victorian at first, um, and then moved up to Prater Way in 1952. Um, what was interesting about researching Prater Way is that there wasn't a great deal on it besides a couple of sort of scattered, more tourist-oriented institutions like the Park Motel or you know Kramer's Motel, which became the Pony Express Lodge. And it really started developing in the 50s into more of a commercial corridor. The role of Prater Way is really fascinating because it tells you the story of Sparks development. It, it started out as a county road. And when Sparks was founded, uh, even before it was founded, they started, people started to buy land. You know, um, when people were waiting for uh, Edward Harriman to announce where the new shops would be located after he decided he needed to realign the route of the at that point, it was the Southern Pacific Railroad and eliminate the shops at Wadsworth and put the shops somewhere else. And so he was thinking about uh, Reno itself, but it was seen as too expensive. Truckee was too far away. So when they decided to locate the shops and present day Sparks, it had previously been kind of swampy marshland, which is why they didn't locate the Reno station there in the first place is that. Uh, it, it was sort of seen as too marshy and that it would flood too much. So Reno got to be Reno in 1868, but they finally decided they could fill in that area that was more marshy and relocate, put the shops there. And then they also relocated the tracks. So the railroad tracks had actually come through right there by what's, what's now Prater Way. And so when they moved them to the south and founded Sparks, you had a railroad bed that was actually, you know, a very, you know, a, a really good kind of improved railroad bed. And so your... Prater Way was initially just the name of the part of that county road that was on the boundary of the Prater edition. The, the Prater edition was one of the many kind of land grabs that happened once the announcement came that there would be this little t little town here. People started buying the ranches uh, mm -hmm. in this area, knowing that this was going to be a good real estate venture. So the Praters are one of them. You know, um, Celia and Nick Prater were up in Virginia City and they bought land and founded the Prater edition. So wow. Prater Way was just that part that kind of abutted their land. But the Newtown track, you know, and at this point they were calling it East Reno. They didn't really know what the name would be. Some people said they wanted to name it Harriman, but Harriman said, no, really, that's okay. You know, so decided to name it Sparks after John Sparks. But then at that point, then you really had this little county road that had some, you know, residences around it. But remember, this was all ranch land. So farms and ranches in that area. So the school was located up there because it was far away from that business district and the railroad, you know, but it was still a small town. So we have these wonderful pictures of the original Sparks School, two-story structure. It had a bell that you could supposedly hear, you know, all the way across across town. Um, 
But then over time, you know, it just kind of developed. So Lincoln Highway, it became part of the route of the Lincoln Highway uh, along uh, Prater Way. And then in the mid-1930s, there was again another one of these realignments, another one of these decisions to straighten out the highway because the problem was there were too many right angle turns and there would be a lot of accidents. So oh, sure. if people came in on you know B Street, then they turned right on 15th, then they turned left on Prater Way and eventually joined up with East 4th Street. So that was seen as too dangerous. So they decided to create this bypass and straightened it out. So then what was then US 40, Lincoln Highway became like, you know, renumbered, right? So it became US 40 through this area anyway in the late 1920s. And then in the in the mid 1930s they created that area that now has what we call the Y, you know, they they called it sort of the, you know, B Street edition um, and bypassed Prater Way entirely for tourism purposes, really, sure. you know. Um, so at that, there was a big outcry too because there were some businesses. There were a number of businesses along Prater Way at that time. Um, including the furniture store, um, Gebert's furniture store. Uh, and so they, they protested, um, but they lost. <laughs> and so at that point then, it was interesting because um, that's really when Praterway started to develop by the mid-20th century into more of a commercial corridor. So it was really in the 1950s when you started to get uh, the expansion of Sparks. So, you know, there's growth there. Um, Probasco and other, you know, developers started to build new subdivisions up to the north of Prater Way from what used to be the, the, the ranches and farms. Um, and so a lot of little, you know, shopping centers and stores started to pop up to really cater to those to those people. And so that was a lot of what we found ourselves documenting along Prater Way was uh, a lot of sort of 1930s to 1960s. Um, kind of developments. And, um, and and those were within the memory of a lot of people that we could talk to. So in the oral histories, we were talking to, you know, John Mayer and Les Ede and, you know, Anita uh, Ross Hicks and people who were here in the 50s, you know, they were kids uh, in, in the 50s here, and they remembered that era uh, of Prater Way. And of course, now we have huge, you know, shopping centers further north and we have, you know, much more, you know, traditional kind of suburbs. But for a long time, Prater Way was known as the main street of Sparks uh, because it really was where so much of the life was. You know, Sparks High School used to be there on 15th Street, but then once it became above Prater Way, you really developed this whole kind of teenage culture happening there. So there was the Dairy Queen and the A&W Root Beer. Um, and then down the road, you had the El Rancho Drive-In that went into the 1950s too. There was the Country Boy. There was a little cafe called the Midget, <laughs> which was kind of fun. I'm not really sure what it was called, the Midget. But um, so a lot of these people will remember just walking around after school, you know, and going into in the park grocery and, and getting candy. And one of the things that I did that was really fun um, was researching at the Sparks Museum, looking at the old high school yearbooks. And you brought this up with one of your uh, other guests looking at the, at the yearbooks there. Um, because a lot of the ads in the back, they actually sent high school kids into a lot of these businesses and took pictures of them in there as an advertisement. <gasps> and these are so valuable to a historian because one of the things that we're always just agonizing over is that there are so few interior photographs of historic buildings. Um, you're much more likely to get pictures of a street. And so you'd know what the outside looked like, but you don't know what the inside looks like. And so these were some of the only photographs that I had found of the interiors of any of these buildings were in the advertisements in the back of the Sparks High School yearbook. Oh, wow. So it's so fun because there's there's two students pushing a grocery cart through the park grocery, you know, and there they are inside the Dairy Queen. And it's just a, it's just a wonderful view into a time. Sometimes these buildings like the park grocery aren't there anymore. Um, sometimes they are, but they look very different. Uh, so um, really trying to develop that story of, of Prater Way which became such an important corridor to the community in a different way than East 4th Street did in Reno, you know? So that, that became just a, a really wonderful way to discover this place and get a much stronger sense of people's connection to, to the history of Sparks and to the spaces that residents have shared for so long. Well, and as you said, too, it really is apparent when you do this 
depth of research that there is a sense of place that develops based on the people and businesses and buildings that come through that area too. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about, because even though we don't have the Historic Sparks NV app anymore, there are certain businesses that are I would say on the border of Reno Sparks, which is in its of itself its own conversation of the shared or distant identity between Reno and Sparks. It's an interesting dichotomy sometimes. But there are two businesses that are available um, on the Reno Historical app if people wanted to look more into those. Could you speak a little bit about those two, pl- two places? Yes, we kind of, on Reno Historical, we kind of uh, took the liberty of going into Sparks a little bit um, <laughs> with with um, putting both the Pony Express Lodge and Coney Island, uh, the Coney Island Bar, um, and the Coney Island Resort, which is no longer there, but the Coney Island Bar on uh, the Reno app. And um, yes, because they, you know, we're so close, we're so close. And they were so connected in many ways to the residents of, of Reno, you know, as much, I think, as the residents of Sparks. And I just love... I just love the whole story of that Coney Island area because this was something that I I wasn't really aware of too much. I knew about Coney Island Bar. I went there, you know, to you know for lunch, for dinner, for events. Um, wonderful, wonderful place, but didn't really know its history too much, and I didn't know why it was called Coney Island. Um, you do any Reno research though, and you immediately learn about the Coney Island Amusement Park, which was across the street from it, starting in 1905. Um, just for about 10 years or so, even wow. like kind of a little less than that. But uh, the connection, of course, came when the streetcar line was put in. And so, you know, we really look a lot at the transportation history of the 4th Street Praterway Corridor because it has been so many things, you know, th- through time, depending on your means of travel. But when Sparks was founded, there was an immediate need to have an easy way to commute between the two towns, Reno and Sparks, which were three miles apart at the time. You know, it seems like the same city right now um, for many people. But um, so they established a streetcar line right away. It opened um, Thanksgiving Day of 1904. It cost five cents. It took 30 minutes at 30 miles an hour um, to get uh, from, from one town to the next. But Coney Island then was an amusement park that started out being called a Whelan's Park. There was actually a Whelan beer company. And so it had like Whelan's Beer Garden. It, it wasn't a, a local beer company, but there was a local man who ran it in Reno. And so he just founded kind of a beer garden and it had a dance pavilion and it had a man-made lake and it, it had, you know, all sorts of activities. And it was really one of these wonderful sort of genteel escapes who take the streetcar out to Coney Island and, and have a day of it. Uh, and so it, um, it went defunct really after he died. And so over time... Different things um, kind of grew up around there. There was an auto camp in the early Lincoln Highway days uh, that became actually a very popular stopping point um, with a gas station and water pump and all the things you needed as an early uh, early motorist. But the whole area became known as Coney Island, and it really was the name being given to that area. So the Coney Island Bar started as a tamale factory, um, and it gradually grew into a, a cafe, the bar, and kind of the location it is now. But it was uh, there was a Coney Island dairy that was right there. So I just love that. But the connection of uh, Reno residents to go out to the Coney Island amusement park and also to go out to Coney Island Bar, I always feel like it very much is a part of the identity for Reno too. So that was one. And then the other um, that you mentioned, the Pony, uh, Pony Express, started in the 30s as Kramer's Motel. Um, again, in that early day, I mean, all of you know that all the these motels that popped up along the 4th Street Praterway corridor, especially between East 4th Street, you know, and um, and the Y is where so many of them were because that was really out in the country. So they started out as, you know, auto courts and a little cottages and, uh, you know, and eventually grew into sort of the more modern motel. But Kramer's Motel, George Kramer was a real estate investor um, and, a, and had all sorts of little businesses. So he started that motel. And uh, it and it developed into the Pony Express Lodge and had a relationship with Harold's Club. So Harold's Club actually gained ownership of it. They didn't have rooms of their own. So they actually had connections to both the El Rancho uh, number two motel that was out on East 4th Street and then also with the Pony Express Lodge and would sh- you know shuffle people back and forth to Harold's Club and put up that incredible neon sign that we just love with the yes. Pony Express Lodge. It's such an icon. 
um, and I'm, I'm so glad it's still there. Um, but these are our landmarks that are, you know, favorites of locals throughout the region. And so we wanted to tell those stories and make sure that people were aware of the background and the history of them. Now, the Sparks Museum is located in a historic building uh, designed by perhaps one of our most famous architects, Frederick de Longchamp. Could you tell us a little bit more about Frederick de Longchamp's and what other buildings he designed in the local area? Sure. I mean, I think if anybody knows the name of a Nevada architect, they probably know Frederick de Longchamp's (laughs) because he was so prolific and he was so versatile. He designed in so many different styles that you can see throughout the state. And he designed a little bit in California, a little Wyoming, a little bit out of state, but mostly primarily in Nevada. He was a Reno native. Um, He was born in 1882 and he practiced from 19, I think, 07, 08 through mid 1960s. So just like a, you know, a few years before he died. And he did not have extensive formal training in architecture. He actually took a mining engineering at UNR, but developed a real interest in architecture. And he designed some of what we consider to be our most historic, you know, beautiful buildings in, in the area here. He designed courthouses throughout the state um, and a couple other state buildings. He was actually, for a period of time, he was uh, re- he was the state of Nevada's first and only state architect. It was a position that they the state only had for a little while. So he was the only one who held it, but oh. but he did have that that position, and so he did a lot of state you know, type building, sort of public buildings, but he also did residences, he did churches, he did schools. Um, his first two solo projects we can see on the landscape today are in Reno. One is the Washoe County Courthouse that he started in 1910, got finished in 1911. They're on South Virginia Street, a beautiful neoclassical columns in the front, right? Um, and the second one is the NCO Depot. It's now the Depot Restaurant, Brewery and Distillery on East 4th Street. Um, it was the depot for the Nevada, California, Oregon Railroad, which no longer exists, but it was established in the 1880s in Reno, and it went all the way up to Lakeview, Oregon, and it went up to, you know, basically be able to haul, you know, livestock and wool and things up from a lot of the ranches and um, Patrick Flanagan, uh, who had the Flanagan Warehouse, which is now Forever Yours Fine Furniture, had a lot of land up there. And so he could actually ship a lot of the wool down and store it in his massive warehouse where he could store 5 million pounds of wool at a time until oh, wow. the market went up, then ship it on the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, but DeLongchamps designed that depot. It's a beautiful, beautiful depot, and they've just done a beautiful job restoring it today. Um, but he also, you know, he designed a lot of other things um, throughout Reno and throughout Sparks. Um, the... The buildings that we have uh, from DeLongchamps and Sparks today still are the Mary Lee Nichols School, uh, which is still there. I think it's now um, Windy Moon Quilts, I think. Um, and then the Sparks Museum, of course, um, which was uh, designed to be a library to begin with. And then the Robert H. Mitchell Elementary School up on Prater Way, which was dedicated in 1939. Um, there are a couple other ones that he had designed in Sparks that aren't standing anymore. The Sparks High School on fifth street and the junior high school, um, that high school he had designed in 1917 and the junior high school in 1924. Uh, and then also the immaculate conception church he designed, which, um, was completed in 1932. And we unfortunately lost uh, just this year. Now that, that building, as you say, once only stood about a block away from the museum. And so this sparked a lot of outcry from locals who were, personally affected by the destruction of this heritage. So to you, where is the line between preservation and economic development? Because we're seeing that a lot happen in our area these days. And what, if anything, can be done to preserve historic buildings? I mean, I wish that people didn't think about it as a, as a line at all. And I think that that's been something that, um, you know, became apparent to me pretty quickly after I, I moved here and actually even, you know, during the course of my research, because what I was really writing about was, um, the, the book that came out of my dissertation, um, I, I titled Reno's big gamble, um, image and reputation in the biggest little city. And the idea there was that it was that, that Reno, uh, more than a lot of other cities uh, in the West that I'd seen sort of took this gamble that they would 
kind of get rid of a lot of the existing landscape to try to reinvent and become something new in pursuit of, you know, economic gain, you know, business interest. And so the, the casinos and the casino era, especially the large hotel casinos, were a very, you know, were sort of the, the big example of that, you know, full blocks um, of of city urban fabric, you know, um, being gone. And so it, it, it became very clear to me that often people would pit development against preservation, you know, and there would even be newspaper headlines. It would say, you know, preservation or progress, you know, or something. And it just, you know, it's just so um, unfortunate to think about it as a dichotomy when we see everywhere such beautiful use of historic buildings to be transformed into vibrant, exciting, modern, um, appealing uses. And I think, you know, just mentioning the depot on East 4th Street is just a perfect example where, that was a building that, after it stopped being a railroad building, was used for uh, Sierra Wine and Liquor for a long time, you know, and they, they used it. And then, you know, they, they moved on. And it was vacant for a long time, and people were very worried about it. Um, the, the most threatened, endangered building is a vacant building. Mm. You need to have a use, you know, for a, a historic building. Uh, and so, but... Fortunately, it wasn't in anybody's crosshairs, you know, and it just kind of stayed there until the right person came along to adaptively reuse it. And now it is just absolutely beautiful. It's a shining showpiece. You know, everybody in Rita loves it. Even people who might have said, oh, that's blight. Oh, it's vacant. You know, before you just have to have appreciation for it. Um, And more and more we see that people are attracted People of all generations are attracted to places with character, places that are unique, um, places that speak to something that is inherent uh, to the identity of that place itself. And so I think what was so difficult about the loss of the Immaculate Conception Church is, first of all, it came across very sudden. I mean, it's to at least to the public. Obviously, plans had been underway for a long time. Um, by the developer who purchased it to to demolish it. Um, but people weren't aware of that. And so um, that was very difficult because it once the word came out that that was the plan, it was sort of too late to save it. And in, in, as far as that developer was concerned, I think they purchased it with the intent of clearing the land. Um, now, a building that is on the National Register of Historic Places, uh, it's no small feat to be listed in that way. And especially for a community this size and the size that it was when that church was was constructed, you know, in the 1930s, it's a very important building um, to the identity of the community, to the beauty and character of the area and the legacy of its architect. Um, so there could be infinite uses for a building like that. You know, churches have been turned into restaurants. Churches have been turned into co-working spaces. There's one in, in Reno, you know, on Wells Avenue. Um, and they benefit from that history. So more and more, I think what we are trying to convey, and a lot of people understand it, but a lot of people kind of don't, you know, is that preservation is a part of development. Um, it is a sustainable part of development. They say that the, you know, the most green building, the most sustainable building is the one that's already built because you're util- you're not, you know, tr- getting new resources. You're not paying to truck in, you know, new materials. So, I strongly believe that someone um, should not, somebody who doesn't care about a building being listed on the National Register of Historic Places should not acquire a building that is on the National Register of Historic Places because there are a lot of people who, who would treat it responsibly and would, and would appreciate and, and respect its history. So to that end, I mean, that's really why I spend so much time um, educating uh, and why public history is so important. Um, I, I really moved away from traditional academic history into public history um, quite early because it just spoke to me. Um, and, and the difference really is just public history just means that you're orienting your research and your writing and uh, you know your projects toward the public instead of really through maybe more academic means uh, like publishing uh, you know, academic books or journals or, you know, teaching in that academic sphere, which I also love and I did for a very long time. Um, but I really love the idea of doing history that that is accessible to the public. Like I really love digital projects because they're accessible, you know, to anyone with a computer can access a digital project rather than maybe purchase a book. Um, or I'm also very interested in these projects that put history on the landscape, whether it's outdoor installations or plaques or things like that. Um, because I think this 
the loss of of that church when Delongchamps, you know, designed so few buildings, really handful in Sparks um, that we still can appreciate and that we have around. Um, it, it was just a real, a real, real tragic loss. And so we try to say, what can we learn from this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and I think spreading an awareness of the importance of historic buildings to our community, um, to our heritage, to tourism. Places are looking for, people are looking for places that are unique. Um, you know, they, we, we look at that when we go, you know, somewhere else, you know, so to inculcate that sense of value, but also I think to try to put into place more, um, more structures to enable preservation. Um, Because it's not just about education and appreciation. It's about having policies in place that will give historic buildings more of a chance. Um, And so that's something that I've worked um, very hard on in Reno and also in the, you know, in the state, um, being on the board of museums and history for the state where we review national register nominations and state register nominations. Um, And I served three terms and chaired the Reno's Historical Resources Commission, which is the keeper of the local historic register. And local historic registers actually offer much more protection for historic buildings than a national register listing, which is a wonderful honor, but it is primarily honorary. A lot of people think like, how could the Immaculate Conception Church be demolished when it's on the national register? And the answer is the national register does not offer protection uh, from demolition um, as, as big an accomplishment as it is. It is local registers that often um, offer the, the most protection for buildings because the city can actually put in place policies where if something is listed on a city register, anybody who wants to do anything to change or modify or even, you know, all the way to demolish that building needs to come in front of this body, needs to come in front of the local uh, historical commission or whatever they call it to get approval for that. And that is a public meeting, you know, and so... And Sparks does not have that at this point, do they? They do not. They do not, you know, is my understanding. And so, but they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one thing people need to be aware of, too, is that um, these local preservation policies are something that are not difficult to formulate and that the Nevada State Historic Preservation Office is very much engaged in helping communities across the state form their own preservation commissions and become established as what's called a CLG, a certified local government. Um, and so if you go to the Nevada State Historic Preservation Office webpage, there's actually a, you know, their, their website, there's a page about certified local governments. And, and essentially when a city becomes a CLG or community uh, becomes a CLG, then they can get access to funding through the State Historic Preservation Office for historical projects, for uh, architectural surveys, you know, for various um, projects that can help promote preservation. Um, They can establish a preservation commission. Um, And the only things that you need to do to establish one is is a city has to have an ordinance um, in their planning and zoning code that supports historic preservation. Um, And then they need to create a historic preservation commission that will oversee that government's preservation program. Um, And then they just have to have provisions for complying with the open meeting law and including the public in the development and the maintenance of that preservation program. So Reno's was formed in the mid 1990s. You know, it wasn't really that long ago um, and has a historic register, has a preservation commission um, with positions that um, that have kind of varied over time. But, you know, they have required, for instance, an architect, you know, a, a planner, a historian, you know, you get people who actually have a background, you know, and a knowledge um, of preservation and members of the public as well. And that way, that's the conduit, you know, between the community and their local government in terms of historic resources. And so there are a lot of things that a commission like that can do in addition to managing the city register and, and encouraging people to nominate their own properties. Of course, no one can, you know, nominate someone else's property, or at least the person who owns the building has to give their permission, you know, for sure. something to be listed on any register, um, on the city register or the national register. Um, but they can promote too, you know, um, and they can try to educate. And so I would strongly encourage 
the the city of Sparks to really put that into place. And I think that they had actually made some inroads on that in the past a little bit in the language that exists um, on the books in the zoning code, but maybe haven't just completely followed through on establishing, uh, creating a certified local government status and then creating that preservation commission. But I think this is sort of one of those I think the loss of, of this church is really one of those moments where you say, how can we try to help prevent a, a loss like that from happening in the future? And the creation of a preservation commission is a really important step. That's excellent, because I feel like in many ways, the individual can sometimes feel disempowered, that their voice can't be heard. Not only that it won't be heard, but that it just simply can't. And it is hopeful, at least, that that is not the case at all, and that there it, something good can come from this. I, th- I think that... You know, preservation more than a, a lot of other um, things in a, in a city relies on processes. Processes have to be put in place that can, for instance, um, send out a notification if someone puts in a, a demolition permit for a building that is 50 years old or older. You know, often the, the National Register sort of uses that 50-year mark as a determination of something being historic. Um, doesn't necessarily make it historically significant, but being historic, we sort of take like a 50 years, you know, and kind of go back. So it's older than that, you know, just so people gets on people's radar. Um, you know, you can do different things because I kind of talk about it. I don't know if you, uh, if, if you remember, or maybe I don't even know if they still have it, but a carnival game called Whack-A-Mole, oh, where yeah. you'd see these little moles <laughs> will pop up. You have to just whack it with a hammer. We used to do that when I was, when I was a kid, it feels like preservation can feel like whack, you're playing Whack-A-Mole because you often don't know a building is threatened until it is, you know, um, it's not like we can kind of walk around patrolling all the time and sort of see like, oh, does it look like someone's going to knock down this important building? Um, you don't know. You know, it's really sometimes we just don't know until someone buys a property and then decides they're going to demolish it. And then it can feel too late. So the important thing to do is try to encourage people to list a building on the city register. You know, it, and generally speaking, you know, it is not something that is arduous. I mean, what the intent is of a city register and having these kinds of protections is to protect the historical integrity primarily of the exterior of the building um, because that's the public facing part of it. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you can't completely redo the interior. You know, you can't, you know, you, you can, you can make it up to date. You can, you know, get better plumbing. You can replace the floors. Right. Um, but what it means is that if you are going to make any changes like to your windows, um, you know, or to your, to your doors, or you need to add a fire escape, you know, which you can do, right. Um, come to this commission and, uh, they'll give you advice on how to do that without impacting the historical integrity of, of the building, you know? And so it's resources, you know, and like I said, it's funding. Um, so if you really care about, trying to retain that sense of, you know, integrity and, and identity. It's a wonderful thing to do is, is list a building on the city register. And then in that way, you're basically saying to the community, I care about this place and I care that you care about it too. Um, and I want to, to be a good steward of the historic building that I have, you know, come into ownership of. Uh, and, and, and really take that seriously because there are a lot, you know, developments picking up, there's a lot happening where things are being demolished and you just kind of hear about this suddenly and we do feel sort of powerless. So it's a way of establishing a, a sense of value, um, that is about culture, you know, and, and that is about the stories of a place, uh, and its people, um, and, and try to, in that way, um, combat this idea that, you know, anybody who favors preservation doesn't like change, you know, or I just hate it when people kind of say that. I mean, it's just not true at all. Right. Um, but to try to disparage it, you know, or that, oh, there's, they, they, you know, they, they never want, uh, they, they're just attached to the old, they're attached to the past. Not at all. Think of the wonderful places that you love um, and what an important role the, you know, historical integrity plays in, in why you love them. Now, you are extraordinarily active in the Reno community. Could you tell us a bit more about some recent or upcoming projects that you have on the horizon? Sure. Um, yeah, I, well, I, like I said, I love to do digital projects and I love to do projects that are um, on the landscape because those to me are sort of the most public oriented. You can kind of like just come along uh, suddenly a, a marker or a plaque and, uh, and you learn a little bit. And so I'm actually working right now on a project with the city of Reno and the RTC in Midtown Reno to put historic plaques on 20 historic buildings. It's actually connected again to another RTC project, but they recently improved 
the um, sidewalks and streets and, you know, different uh, landscaping along South Virginia Street. And so we did a similar project on South Virginia Street. And this is kind of the end of that project is is putting up some plaques to tell people the story of that corridor, which has another sort of remarkable history. You know, I talk about Reno being a crossroads, 4th Street being the sort of original east-west thoroughfare and Virginia Street being the north-south. So that's something that's kind of uh, we're, we're wrapping up now and we'll get those installed in uh, in a couple of months, I worked on a, a project for the Nevada Commission for Women in the Nevada State Capitol, which is the story of women in Nevada. We called it Silver State Sisters, and it's a um, a whole installation, a permanent installation on a second floor hallway near the Battleborn exhibit, which is another historical exhibit um, up in the Capitol about Nevada women. And we have images and stories of all sorts of Nevada women through time. Um, we did a digital project a couple years ago for Reno's divorce history, um, and we created a website. This was through the University of Nevada, um, renodivorcehistory.org, which tells the story of Reno's migratory divorce trade, which was just a hugely um, influential economic driver for the entire state of Nevada, but it really was one of the first things that put Reno on the map and made Reno famous. So it's images and stories and um, brochures for dude ranches, and um, again, oral histories. Um, I do a lot of oral history. I really, I love what you can learn through oral history, um, things that we can't find through other historical documentation. We can often find what happened and when, but we don't know why. Um, we don't know how it affected people. So all the way through these projects, um, whether it's the Midtown Project or the Fourth Street Prater Way Project, um, or the Divorce History Project. I love to have oral history be a part of that. Um, recently, too, I've been doing a lot of work with um, Our Story, Inc. on Black Springs. Um, Black Springs, which was um, founded really kind of early on in the 20th century, north, about six miles north of downtown Reno, but in the 1950s started to be um, populated by members of the African-American community who established a very strong community uh, with churches and a community center um, in a place that was very sort of inhospitable <laughs> and didn't have a lot of resources at first when they started to live there. Um, Our Story, Inc. is just a wonderful nonprofit locally that works on trying to bring more attention to the stories of the unsung um, and, and less... Um, you know, less known histories of the Reno Sparks area. And so we've been working on projects to put the uh, historic firehouse up there on the National Register. And they have, we have a whole feature on Reno Historical about that. Um, I also recently have just finished up um, work on researching Paul Revere Williams, the architect Paul Revere Williams, who is a renowned Los Angeles architect, African-American architect, who is known as one of the most you know, important African-American architects of the 20th century. He was known as the architect to the stars. He designed a number of um, buildings in Nevada and some in, in Reno and, and outside. Uh, and there is a uh, exhibit at the Nevada Museum of Art that is a beautiful, wonderful photographer, uh, Jonna Ireland, has put together photographs of, she was commissioned by the museum to take photographs of of uh, Williams' Nevada work, and I was commissioned by the museum to research all of his work in northern and central Nevada, Clay T. White Research Southern Nevada, um, and write uh, essays for a, a website that they've put up, and I've been doing some talks about, um, about Williams' work in Nevada. That's been exciting to me because, of course, one of his... Um, one of his major Nevada projects was what we call the Lear Theater, but the first Church of Christ Scientist on Riverside Drive in Reno. And like I say, you know, any building is threatened that is not being used. And that building has been vacant for quite some time, which always raises concern. Uh, the fact that it recently has become city-owned, owned by the city of Reno, um, gives the public more of a voice and a role, I think, in trying to determine its future use and, and make sure that it is... Uh, renovated responsibly. There are wonderful protective covenants on that building through the State Historic Preservation Office in connection with funding that the building has received through the years. But the First Church of Christ Scientist building is on both is on the city, the state, and the National Register of Historic Places. So its significance is really uh, unparalleled. And how can people find your research and your work, or just you? <laughs> If you want to be found, <laughs> it sounds like you're very, very busy. I, I, I'm really, I, I'm working on a lot of things at the same time, and sometimes it can, it can be overwhelming. But it's just, it's just become such a passion, I think, here too. And the more you learn about the history of this community, I think the more you appreciate it. 
um, the more you want to learn and the more you want to promote it to other people. And that's really what I've found. I mean, being someone who is not uh, from Nevada is not, you know, as they often, you know, talk about being fifth generation Nevada. And well, I'm like, a, I'm a newbie, um, really. <laughs> um, but it has just captured uh, my imagination. And so I want so much to, to work toward helping us all be better stewards, I think, of its history um, and of the built environment and of, and of the stories. So my website is storiesinplace.com. That's the name of my firm. People could reach me uh, through that. I have another website that's kind of more oriented toward my writing, which is uh, aliciambarber.com. Uh, and I have recently started writing a, an, an e-newsletter called The Barber Brief. It's really trying to get people, um, encourage people to be more involved in questions of urban development, primarily in Reno, um, but to try to, you know, help people feel empowered to learn more about the context of, of decisions that are happening on the lands, about the landscape and about the built environment of the city and, um, you know, make sure that their voices are heard. So that's on the Substack platform, the, the barberbrief.substack.com. Um, so people are, yeah, just very, um, um, I would really love to, to, to hear from people. I spend a lot of time doing talks. Um, I think I'm doing three talks to three different rotary chapters in the next uh, two wow. months. And, um, but I'll, I'll talk to anyone. Um, I, I really love to show images, um, of this area's history. You know, when, when Reno was celebrating its sesquicentennial a couple years ago, um, in, in 2018, uh, I worked with the university of Nevada, uh, library, to do a five-story, uh, all five floors of the Knowledge Center, we dedicated to the story of Reno and kind of told told that story through images and um, and actually created a kind of a replica arch <laughs> even in the in the main atrium, which was which was really cool. Um, and so I really think that um, people respond a lot to visuals. So I love to do talks that show people. Um, you know, a lot of the historic images of Reno, you know, and also just kind of seeing what is actually in there. Um, and this is true for Sparks, too. You know, sometimes you have to look beyond the surface to see uh, the historicity, you know, to kind of see the story, to kind of understand this building in front of you and how it relates to a context that has changed over time. And so what was that original context, you know, that maybe we're not capturing anymore? Because once you understand that, then I think you appreciate the role of that building a little bit more. I know that doing the research on Prater Way completely changed my view of Prater Way, which I would have just driven along, I think, and and thought, oh, there's a store and there's that, you know, over there. But understanding, you know, that Deer Park was named because uh, of the deer <laughs> that were put in the park, you know, in 1902, um, I'll never, I'll never look at it the same, you know. And I think that's what these stories can do for us. Well, that is fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And before we go, I have our final big three questions that I ask every guest. So the first question is, what sparks you about Sparks? You talked a lot about it today, but <laughs> what do you believe makes it a unique place to visit, live, or work? What I really love about Sparks is that Sparks was a small community for a very long time. And I feel such a strong sense of the layers of its history when I now walk through Sparks or, you know, when I'm even driving past, you, you see all those layers. And a lot of the time it's through the names on the landscape, which is often what grabs me to begin with, you know, about a place. Uh, what is that? What is that named after? You know, what's Prater Way? Oh, Prater Way, you know, Nick and Celia Prater, you know, they, they bought that land before there was even a Sparks because they just felt like... Um, this was going to be a, a place that was going to be important in the future, you know, and it could be an opportunity for them. Um, Sullivan Lane, you know, the O'Sullivan Ranch. Um, that's what it was named for, you know. And so I, I talked to Leslie, you know, about who lived on Sullivan Lane. And you can look at old maps and and see where the ranch was, um, you know, and you see that kind of throughout um, throughout the city, you know, over there uh, to the west around the Coney Island area, there's some streets named Field and View. And that was a really rural area for a long time, you know, so it was where there was a dairy and, and like I said, where the Coney Island Amusement Park was and just the name of Coney Island and where that came from, you know. So so what sparks my interest, I think, is just those those questions. I think that curiosity, who, who, who was that? You know, what, what was their story? And um, what does learning more about that um, do to help our appreciation 
today of this place. And I think it, it can do a lot. So it's, I, I really hope that people have that curiosity and ask those questions because it can just lead to really wonderful discoveries. Do you have a favorite story or moment from Sparks's history? This could either be a significant historical moment or a favorite personal memory of an event or space that you've enjoyed in the past. I mean, I think one of the one of the stories that just I, I just thought about because I had just mentioned Deer Park, but I just I just love the whole idea of putting some deer in a park in 1902, <laughs> you know, over in this new town of, as part of a kind of amenity for your housing tract is that you would have a park with deer in it, you know? And when you looked at some of these early newspaper articles about the deer in deer park, I mean, they were constantly breaking out. They were running away. I think one time, unfortunately, one of them got shot by a hunter who oh, like, you no. know, didn't really understand that these were the deer in the park. They were the park deer. Um, but I'm just so enamored by that idea. Uh, and, and Deer Park itself, I think, became such an important part to the community. Uh, even before, you know, it was it was this this little park and then it was actually an auto camp for a while. They let people park there during the Lincoln Highway days. And then they put in the swimming pool in the 1940s. And I just heard so many people talk about spending the entire day at that pool uh, you know, um, in the, in the fifties and the sixties and having Jack's carnival in deer park. So I love those stories. I mean, I think personally to me, just through my experience as an, as an outsider coming here and having the privilege of speaking to people and interviewing them about their lives, the most moving memorable experiences to me have been those conversations where I'm sitting across from someone, you know, at their kitchen table and they're telling me what it was like to grow up here in Sparks in the fifties. And you can tell that they're reliving that moment. It's becoming very vivid to them again, you know, spending those days, um, you know, at, at the deer park pool. And we, in that moment are sharing that recreation. And the fact that me as an outsider can, can feel like that's coming to life and I can picture it too, makes me feel encouraged that, other people will feel the same way. And so even if you're not from here, um, you can help perpetuate this public memory of this place that is that means so much to so many people. And places just become so much more endlessly interesting to us when we have that appreciation. But I just think about my conversations with John Mayer or Lizzie or, you know, Anita Ross Hicks and, and, and all these people who welcome you into their home and share their memories with you. And, um, it's just very powerful. So you can, you can read these oral histories, um, on that fourth Prater online Nevada site and, you know, and elsewhere. But I think, you know, I hope others will have that experience too. And lastly, uh, since the Sparks Museum is dedicated to preserving the Sparks story and also the larger surrounding Truckee Meadows region, we believe that there's countless stories that are worth telling, like you're talking about with these oral histories. Um, and also that goes hand in hand with the artifacts that some people have of some of the early days of this area. So what is one thing that you own or one thing that you're aware of that if you had the ability, you would put it in a museum? Well, I'm going to just have my, my historian hat on here um, because I know from our experience with all of these local projects that we've done that people have photographs in their homes <laughs> that will illuminate so much to the broader community. Um, the, the oral histories and the stories they can tell, absolutely. I think that's something that I really want to encourage, but something that might even be uh, easier, fun, um, accessible, maybe you always meant to go through your family's photos, um, would be to really go through and try to think about whether just getting a copy of this photo, you know, to, to the museum, to the Sparks Museum, to the museum that is close to you, um, that, that they involve, um, you know, could add to our, to our understanding of this place, because it was really only through going to, you know, Coney Island and the Galetti family has all of these historic photographs of Coney Island and their family and people just enjoying themselves through the decades within that same space. And the pictures are on the walls. And I just asked them like, um, could I like take copies of these and scan them and bring them right back to you? And they said, sure, which I couldn't believe. I loaded all the <laughs> frames like into my, you know, into my car, um, went home, scanned them, you know, took them back. 
but now we have this record, you know, that can be a little bit more public, you know, and, and more accessible there. Um, and, and the same thing was true, um, you know, for Anita Ross Hicks and like photographs that she had of the ideal shopping center and just of, you know, her dad and his photography studio, you know, but these help everyone understand this place more and see kind of that, that connection. Um, Blue Ribbon Meets, you know, same thing. They had all these photographs on the wall, you know, I just said, hi, uh, can I, you know, um, could I, could I make a scan of this? So that's one thing that I think is, um, that is sort of easy for people maybe to do, but what just makes such an enormous difference. And what's just so glorious about Sparks is that you have a city museum. Reno doesn't have a city museum, you know, um, they have the Nevada Historical Society and there's a room and it's wonderful and they're, you know, interpreting history. But, uh, but to have your own city museum is saying we care as a city, as a community about perpetuating this public memory of this place and promoting it. Um, doing the podcast like this is such a fabulous way of trying to spread the word about the history of this place. Um, like you say, putting together a digital map um, that people can then access, doing programs, doing walking tours, you know, all of the things that the museum does. I know you've got a research room, you know, going on now. It's just a phenomenal example of how one institution can play such an enormously important role in in really making this place a home, not just to the people who have been here for generations, but to people who are just arriving today, you know, and they can come down and they can look around and they can understand this place. So the answer to your question is photographs first, photographs, um, get your photographs because, you know, museums don't have a lot of physical space. It's kind of tough, right? And a picture says a thousand words. Picture yeah. says a thousand words and <laughs> we have endless capacity for, you know, for digital um, files. So I think that would just be a great place to start. And, uh, and I encourage everyone to do that and, and give your local museum a call. <laughs> Alicia, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Sparks Museum podcast is funded in part by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It is produced and recorded at the podcast recording studio at Sparks' own AntSpace co-working entrepreneurial hub, a place for entrepreneurs made by entrepreneurs. We really want to get the word out about our brand new audio series, so please spread the word about our new podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and share this episode. Do you have a favorite story of Sparks that you want to hear on the podcast? Email info at sparksmuseum.org to share any recommendations. We would love to hear from you. We also invite you to visit the Sparks Heritage Museum on 814 Victorian Avenue. The museum is open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Please come visit and be a part of our ongoing efforts to tell the Sparks story. We'll see you next time. <laughs>